Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we continue our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, with a message titled, The Definition of Love. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. one of the hardest things to do, defining love. You know, it's been said that it might be difficult to define, but we all know what it feels like when we feel it. Well, yeah, but even that, I'm, I'm not so sure. The spoiled child always gets what he or she wants, might define that as love, but I'm sure it's not. Or the faithless church that fails to discipline an adulterous husband, or fails to take a stand against heretical theology. I mean, that, that might sound like acceptance and inclusion, but it's, it's not love. On the other hand, another church that does demand discipline might mete out discipline in an unloving way. I hope you hear the difficulty. What is this thing that we call love? You know, the ancient Greeks had four different words for love. And C.S. Lewis identified this well in his book, which he has entitled, The Four Loves. Storge is the love of affection. It's the love of, of something or someone. It's enjoying something or someone. You have storge if you, if you find it pleasurable to be around someone. Uh, we just enjoy them. I mean, perhaps they make us laugh, or perhaps they make us think, or they might even entertain us. That's called affection, storge. It's not the biblical view of love. Phileo is the love of friendship. Friendship means that we share something in common. It carries with it the idea of companionship, but it also carries with it the idea that, that we're passionate about the same thing, and so we're going somewhere together. The New International Version translates Amos 3, verse 3 as, How can two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? And phileo is a love that that points to a common direction together, a deep fundamental agreement regarding something. And that something results in companionship, but, but that's also not the love of 1 Corinthians 13. And then there's eros. It's sexual love, romantic love, even erotic love. This is what many people talk about today when when they talk about love. And finally, agapao, or or the verbal form agape, as so many of us know it by. It's often called the love of God. It's unselfish. It loves not for what it can receive or share, but rather it loves because it is the nature of the lover to love. See, one can't earn that kind of love. It's offered freely, often to one who is unworthy of it. And for the Greeks, one word for love would never cover it. The range of things that we mean when we speak about love is, is varied. You know, I've sometimes thought that in our culture that we've reduced love to what I call the two S's, sensuality and sentimentality. It's either sexual or a matter of inner feelings. Of course, it's very hard to define love. But what we can do is define what we mean by Christian love for others. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, instead of using abstract definition, Paul uses, well, action words. In other words, instead of defining the thing, he would rather tell you what it looks like. I mean, what it really looks like when you actually bump up into it. I call verses 4-7 to the character of Christian love. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7. to Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
So we have here 15 indicators or descriptors of love. They're verbs, and they are in the present indicative active tense, and so they have this sense of being ongoing. And, and that would mean that what Paul is describing becomes habitual. It's, it's ongoing. So in my mind, I would think that each of us can at times exhibit the qualities that Paul is speaking about, but, but the loving person has these characteristics as a kind of a, a default. It's, it's ongoing. Look, Paul's not arguing that there's any person outside of Jesus who acts lovingly all the time. In each of us sin. We all fail. But once the Spirit controls us, we learn to lean solidly into love as the way in which we live life. We learn, if you will, to to train the flesh not to react in self-centered or self-promoting ways in which we look out for our rights. Instead, we learn to train the flesh to respond in love. And so Paul is describing a certain way of responding to others when he's describing love. He's saying that a loving person will behave in certain ways, ways we can identify. Once we understand how a loving person behaves, we can then begin to see that behaving in these ways are to be the goals or the priorities of the local church. We train and encourage and and disciple both individuals and the entire church to respond in love. Now, especially among churches that encourage believers to use their spiritual gifts, this is particularly important. Paul understands how spiritual gifts can can both destroy a church as well as heal and build a church, and the difference is love. Now, I know that if I simply went through all 15 of these descriptors of the loving person, I, I suspect that we'd have a hard time remembering them. You know, but as I studied these 15 things over and over again, I realized that a number of themes developed. Let's see if we can identify them. Let's read the first phrase, verse 4a. Love is patient and kind. Let's start with the word patience. The first thing that love is characterized by is patience. Now, please notice, patience is not required when we agree with someone. You know, when people are like us, when when they share the goals that we share, when their lives are motivated the way that ours are, and when their highest priorities reflect our own, well, patience is never required. We might be inspired by them, but we're not required to be patient with them. So what does the word patience mean? Well, the word means to be self-controlled in the face of of provocation. That is, when someone really gets to you, they're in your face and they're irritating and frustrating you and hindering you and even criticizing you. Love is actually slow to respond. Patience means to remain tranquil in circumstances that are that are not tranquil at all. Now, please notice that patience is, is a very different matter than the person who's complacent or laissez-faire. A person may appear patient for no other reason than that he doesn't care or she's afraid to challenge anything. No, no, that's not patience. Patience is the sign of strength. There are some people who are are intimidated by people, and, and that's really a sign of weakness. Then there are people who react strongly, always creating chaos and responding badly. And and that's also a sign of, of weakness. It means that they're a volatile person who can't control himself or herself. See, patience is strength, but it does not act immediately. I mean, after all, is not this a virtue in God? Romans 2.4 tells of God's patience and kindness towards sinners that is meant to lead them to repentance. So genuine patience knows that there is a time to act, 
But that action is never quick. It, you know, it gives room for changes of mind, for repentance, for, for a person to reconsider their ways. Now, the second word is the word kind, and, and Paul says love is patient and kind. And Paul uses the word kindness as a noun quite frequently in his writings, but this actually is the only place in the New Testament where that word appears as a verb. Kindness recognizes that everyone carries a burden of some sort. That that burden might be a tragedy in their lives. That burden might be an obligation that they have to fulfill. And that burden might even be their own sin. And, And even though their sin is their rebellion against God and his word, all rebellion against God is a, what, a burden. It's a heavy load. Kindness looks upon someone with pity and understanding and with care. Now, those two words patient and kind, those words can be put together into one category. You know, combining those two thoughts tells us that love is redemptive. Love seeks to win the erring person back. Love redeems. See, that's the description of the loving person. To be loving is not to be a doormat. I mean, you can be assertive and loving. But the loving person always allows an individual a chance to be redeemed, no matter how badly they've screwed it up. You know, tell me, how do you do when when people get under your skin and offend you or bother you? You leave the door open to redeem that individual or you just slam the door shut. You see, if you can't be redemptive, using Paul's own words in verses 1 to 3, you're annoying, you're insignificant, you've accomplished nothing. No matter how many things you feel you've accomplished, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, verse 1. You're you're nothing, verse 2. You've gained nothing, verse 3. You're annoying, insignificant, you've accomplished nothing. Are you getting the hang of this thing? So let's move on. Having said that love is redemptive in being patient and kind, Paul then says, and I'm reading verses 4b to 5a, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. Now, as before, let's see if we can take this one descriptor at a time, envy. Now, you're going to find that this is the 10th commandment. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. So, so here's the question. Why is it unloving to want what someone else has? Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy, while the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians Empowered Living Volume 1 available digitally or on CD free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Envy is to a great deal an emotion. Envy is an intense negative feeling we have regarding the achievements and successes of someone else. But it's also a feeling that we have of what we perceive to be 
the unmerited good fortune of others. You know, that guy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, we say. It's a sense of sarcasm behind that. We mean if, if, if that person had to slog through the hard things that I've had, I have no doubt he would be no better off than I am. Maybe, maybe worse. He doesn't know how lucky he is. But there's more. What happens when an unworthy person is simply better than we are in a given area? I mean, what then? Now, if it's about something we care little about, well, no problem. Here's an example. I'm a very bad golfer. I, I enjoy golf, but I do it badly. Everyone I play with is better than I am, and occasionally I ask them to give me a tip on my stance or my grip or swing, but I never, I never envy them. Why? Well, to be honest, golf just doesn't mean that much to me. But what if it's about something I intensely care about? And what if the person has something that I wish I had? And furthermore, what if that person is unworthy of what they have received? Remember, the whole thing is about spiritual gifts. I mean, the pastor who sees another preaching better than he does. And even while it seems clear that the great preacher is not as spiritual as he could be, he's not worthy. You see what I'm saying? I mean, just fill in your own category, especially the one you have difficulty with gets recognition and you don't. And I want to be oh so gentle here in this category because this is a common experience. When someone is simply better at something than we are, it is so very difficult to rejoice with them. Perhaps you know someone at work who has less experience than you do, and yet they outperform you. That's tough. Boasting, on the other hand, is the opposite of envy. It tries to put a brave face on all our achievements, making sure we have proper recognition. And arrogance, well, it's the person who's puffed up, the person who has a very high view of himself or, or herself. I know it's easy to pass over this category quickly because for many of us, the idea of arrogance, well, it's not possible. I mean, we think of ourselves as having an inferiority, not a superiority complex. But in fact, you can be arrogant and have an inferiority complex. Really, whenever we envy others, we show how difficult it is for anyone to receive accolades. Oh, yes, we cheer people on when they have a gift that's unlike ours. I mean, after all, why shouldn't I cheer a great hockey player when I have no such skill? But it's a little harder to cheer someone on when they're good at what I am good at. And yet, without being able to do that, I'm annoying, insignificant, and I've accomplished nothing. So says Paul. So we learned that love is redemptive, and now we learn that love is humble, rejoicing in the successes of others. Now let's move to our next category. It's not arrogant or rude. Let's begin with rudeness. I remember reading a story of a pastor of a large church, and he, he came into the building while a well-known musical band was setting up for an evening worship set in his church. You know, the pastor on that day wore an old set of jeans and a sweatshirt. You know, he greeted the band, and they asked him, please don't bother us. This is important business. And later, as the church was gathered, the pastor showed up in his suit and introduced people to the evening worship. And after the service, one of the members of the band came and apologized, and he said, look, I didn't know you were the pastor. And the pastor simply responded by saying, really, it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter who anyone is. Do you know how easy it is to act appropriately when the person with whom we have dealings is someone we're trying to impress? D.A. Carson, I think, captured this thought very well. He said, it is well said that you can spot a gentleman not by way he addresses his king, but by the way he addresses his servants. 
The former may not be courtesy at all, but merely enlightened self-interest. The idea of rudeness and insisting on our own way is connected. Again, someone will say, are you saying I'm to be a doormat? But here we misunderstand. Look, Paul's not saying that we should let every person run roughshod over us. But rather, he says that there is a way of not defending ourselves. You see, you can insist on a point for a greater cause, but if all you ever insist on is your own way, well, that's nothing. I know of people who will never let anyone get away with saying anything against them when it relates to them, but feel very different when it relates to someone else. Then they simply ignore the insult. This is the very definition of the unloving man or woman. We have said that love is redemptive and humble, but now we add love is selfless. And Paul then says it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Here he says, love is not touchy. Some of us notice every single slight. I mean, we bristle the minute we seem to be taken lightly. We simply need to be respected in a way that gives proper recognition to our own conceived greatness. And finally, Paul strings the final words together. Listen, in verse 6, he says, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And the idea here is that the idea of keeping a record of wrongs. It's the idea of never forgetting the wrongs that others have done. And years ago, I was invited to intervene in a dispute between two brothers. And one of the brothers brought into the meeting this large three-ring binder. You know, in this binder was a record of phone calls between them and conversations and so on, all with exact dates and times. And given the detailed nature of the thing, I had no doubt at all that it was true. And as he read through the list, I must say, he sure made that other man look like an unworthy fellow. I mean, the guilty man sputtered and he he apologized and he became red in the face and he had his head bowed in guilt. You know, when it was my turn to talk, I asked for the binder. I I pointed out that love keeps no record of wrongs and, and I volunteered to throw the entire record book out. And the man who kept records, he was furious with me, and, and he said that I had abused my position as the moderator of the meeting, and he told me I had simply been called to witness the other person's wrongdoing. And then he, then he promptly, actually, this is true, he actually started a new binder in which the very first page was, was how I had abused my position, and then he dated it along with the details of the conversation. Listen, love keeps no record of wrongs. That doesn't mean we don't remember, because we do remember. And it doesn't mean that we don't take steps to keep the other person from abusing us in the future. But it does mean that we don't use the wrongs done to us to strike the other person if we had the chance. Look, an abused woman should not just go back to the abuser saying, I keep no record of wrongs. Perhaps she should remember, but the passage means to say that she will not use what was done to destroy the other. See, more than one person has looked at the list in verse 7 and and they thought, well, this is the definition, if anything is, of a doormat. I mean, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, that, although quite poetic, sure enough, doesn't it sound hopelessly naive? The NIV, the New International Version, although it presents a paraphrase of this text, I think it captures the very heart of the matter. It always protects, looking for the best result in the other. It always trusts, believing that better things are possible. It always hopes that redemption can be found. It always perseveres. It never gives up. In short, love is hopeful that there might be room for redemption. 
That's not naivete. This is a recognition that God does transform people's hearts. The loving person is convinced that if there is room for transformation and the reclaiming of someone, they will not stand in the way, but rather they will be there to help. Let's remember what we've said. Love is redemptive. Love is humble. Love is selfless. Love is not touchy about slights done to us. And love will never stand in the way of the redemption of the other. In short, we might say that love is learning to act like Christ. For is it not true that God is redemptive and that Christ, our Redeemer, humbled himself and became a man? and that he lived a selfless life among us, and that when he was slandered, he was not touchy, but returned blessings for insults, and that his love is so positive, he sees that he can take a hopeless sinner and redeem that person for his glory. See, let me get personal. When I read 1 Corinthians 13, I think that I have such a long way to go before I can say that I have become a loving person. But I think God is still at work in me, And I've asked God to help me to see that if there is love in me, there might yet be hope for that in others as well. See, I might say, Lord, teach me the love of Christ so that others can learn that love in and through me as well. Heavenly Father, I pray, O Lord, that you would make of those who are listening, make us into people who reflect the love of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. John, as, uh, as we listen to this message and as I think about it, you know, something comes to mind. I'm thinking, you know, what would be an example or who might be an example in your experience of a leader who is a loving leader? You know, Ben, uh, the, the, the man who led me to Christ um, was amazingly loving towards me. Um, he saw me in my sin and in my rebellion and never gave up on me. And when I got to that place in my life where I, where I told him some of the things that I was involved in, which I thought would, you know, when I finally revealed who I was, I thought he, he would just distance himself from me, but he never did. Um, that drew me to Christ. It was love that drew me to Christ in the end. I, I think you probably have people like that in your life too. Well, it is, it's interesting, is it because we can think about all the things that people could do for us or, or how they could teach us, but in the end, it wasn't what he said, it was that sense that he loved you. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Uh, I know because I, I still think of the the day he, you know, he got up from behind his desk when I, you know, I cheekily said, you know, what do you think of me now after I had told him what I was up to? And he crossed the room and he just hugged me and he said, I, I think I love you. Uh, I could never get away from that. What a great message. What a great example. Well, join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. I think you'd agree, sometimes what we need is a dose of encouragement, laughter, and a reminder that God loves us. The goal of Laugh Again is to use storytelling and laughter to engage people of all backgrounds with a message of hope and joy that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus, God, and His Word. Host Phil Calloway provides his unique life perspective and insight in a style that encourages and uplifts. One listener wrote, Thank you for helping keep our focus on gratitude. It truly helps. In these times, I'm grateful to know the God who holds the whole world in the palm of his hand. What an eternally comforting thought. 
Laugh Again exists to lead people to consider a lifestyle of true joy and hope in Jesus. To find out more or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, like Laugh Again, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.